I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Cheryl Richardson is my guest today. I am absolutely thrilled to speak to her about her New York Times best-selling book, The Art of Extreme Self-Care. We chat about being sensitive, disappointing people, and how extreme self-care relates to business and so much more. This episode refocuses your attention on what parts of your life you have been neglecting and how that is holding you back from all that you want. Cheryl Richardson, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for saying yes, because we're going to be talking about the art of extreme self-care, and I know you take that seriously. And (laughs) so I appreciate the fact that you're giving me any time today. Um, (laughs) And as I I told you, I'm I'm thrilled to be speaking to you. And I have to say this is a full circle moment for me, because back in, and I want to say it's the mid-90s, could have been the late 90s, I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show, and you were talking about personal discovery, and you were posing questions to the audience. Mm -hmm. And I was at a point just at a university looking for direction in my life. And so the questions you asked resonated with me deeply. And so I remember printing them off and answering them, and I still have them to this day. And it was likely the first time I started focusing on me. If I really want to think about my awakening, I thought it was like in my late 20s, but I think it started earlier when maybe you planted a seed in my head, because it was also the first time that I saw or heard someone called a life coach, and that didn't really resonate with me. Mm-hmm. But I eventually became one. And you know, here I am speaking to you, and uh, so the first person to sort of plant seeds and focus um, on, on yourself, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And um, we're you have the book, The Art of Extreme Self-Care. Mm-hmm. And I loved your definition in it because you said it's much more than taking warm baths and getting a massage. How do you define extreme self-care? Mm-hmm. Well, let me first say that things like warm baths and massages are actually a really good thing. <clears throat> it's a, that's still an important part of self-care. And um, But, you know, when I talk about extreme self-care, I use that word, and I think I say right in the beginning of the book that um, my very first coach, when I started working with him, and he was sort of doing an assessment, getting an idea of what what was going on in my life, he said to me at one point, oh, you don't need self-care, you need extreme self-care. And basically what he meant was you need to really challenge the standards that you're living by in your life, you need to raise your standards dramatically, so much so that it's going to probably feel uncomfortable. At first, you're going to feel feel overly entitled, or maybe that you're being arrogant or selfish. But those kinds of actions are necessary in order for you to begin living a life that is truly a reflection of who you are and what really matters to you, not what matters to everybody else. Mm. And when he said that to you, you thought what? I thought, holy crap, I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a people pleaser? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I had a PhD in that. And, um, (laughs) and so, yeah, I was really, I was very nervous because, you know, he was somebody who didn't mess around. I mean, he had a long waiting list of people wanting to work with him. And he basically Mm. made it clear to his clients that, listen, I'm here I take your life seriously. I need you to take your life seriously. We've got work to do. You need to take action consistently. Coaching is about taking action. It's not about talking about the actions you want to take over and over and over again. It's actually doing something different. 
And if you're not ready to do that, I'm not the guy for you, you know, so let's step aside and let me put someone else in place. So I knew when he said that, that I would actually have to take very clear, practical steps in my life to practice better self-care. And I wanted to please him (laughs) at that point. (laughs) I was was such a good people pleaser that I thought, you know, I really want to please him. And that worked to my advantage, actually. I'm curious, why did you go to him from the first place? Why were you seeking coaching? Because I really, I was, um, I had been, prior to that, I had called myself a business counselor. I had been a tax consultant in, in the, the first part of my life. And I saw after working with small business owners um, that very often it was their own lack of growth and development that got in the way of them expanding their businesses. Mm-hmm. And so I left tax work, went on to call myself a business counselor and said that I helped people to grow their businesses by growing themselves. But there was no profession called coaching back then. And when I met Thomas, my first coach, he had been a financial planner to very successful people who were not happy in their lives. And he created this coaching process that he worked with his clients on to help them really get clear about what was important to them and to orient their lives around that. And when I saw the curriculum he developed, he was just beginning to develop a coach curriculum. I was really blown away. And I thought, this is what I'm doing, but it's so much better than what I'm doing. So I wanted to be a coach. And I had learned even before that from Tony Robbins that if you, if there's something you want to do in your life, find somebody who's really, really, really successful at it and model them. Mm. And Thomas was the only one doing it. And he was very successful at it. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to hire a coach, I'm going to hire somebody who's already doing what I want to do in a massively successful way. And I'm going to model their behavior. And that's why I hired him. Mm, Well, it looks like it worked. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I thought I hired him to grow my business. (laughs) But he um, said, Cheryl, you have to stop being a people pleaser. Well, but what he said, what he said to me was the same thing I was saying to clients, except Mm. he was now really holding my feet to the fire. He basically said, we're going to spend the first probably six to 12 months focused on your own self-care. And trust me, if you make your self-care a priority, if you really own your power and speak up and say what you want and say what you don't want, then life's going to fall in behind you to support you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's going to be an unconventional path. A lot of people are, you know, we're not going to be doing the traditional marketing and business developing stuff that most people do. We're going to be focusing on helping you get your act together. And you have to trust that that will ultimately lead to professional success. And he was absolutely right. Wow. Wow, that's so. amazing. Yeah, because I think so many people, maybe whether they're in business, and like you said, you might be coming for business coaching, but not recognize that it may be the growth of yourself that needs to happen in order for your business to grow. That's right. And, and the fact that he took six to 12 months, he said, listen, we're going to be, this is going to take some time oh, yeah. to actually transform this. Well, and if you look at the art of extreme self-care, you'll see it, you know, it, it it's, Unlike a lot of self-help books, I remember when I wrote that book, I said to my publisher, this book needs to reflect the kinds of actions that people need to take, especially women. It was primarily geared towards women, um, the, the new behaviors that they need to develop over time. So that's why it's 12, there are 12 self-care behaviors that are outlined in the book and you're meant to practice one a month because it, there are no quick fixes when it comes to personal development. It has to be a lifelong commitment and it has to be something you're willing to put time and energy into and take action consistently on. So I wanted to lay out the truth of that process in a book form so that people could use it both individually, but also with 
each other, you know, with groups to support one another as they move forward and making changes, because some of them aren't easy. Some of them are scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like what you say at the beginning of your book that, you know, the extreme self-care. So, right, taking a bath, all this stuff is good. We need to care for ourselves. But this is about building self-esteem, which is a big women becoming emotionally strong and empowered and developing the kind of character character that makes you decisive, clear and honest about who you are and what you want. And I I just thought that resonated with me uh, greatly because that is the importance of focusing on yourself. So what are the signs um, that you need a self-care upgrade? If someone's listening to this and go, "Uh oh, oh." (laughs) well, I mean, the reality is I can pretty much guarantee you that 99.9% of people listening to this need a self-care upgrade. So you don't even have to ask the question anymore, right? It's just, (laughs) just do it. You know, all of us, whether it's, Um, And let me just back up and say what you just said. I think you're reading from the preface of the revised edition, right? Yes. 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 Because, um, you know, that that was just published. I updated the book about a year and a half ago. And what you just read is the most important point of that book, which is this isn't just about feeling better. It's Mm. about raising self-esteem, raising self-worth, because when you believe you're worth more, you expect more from life and from others, right? And so um, it might be that you need to pay attention to where you feel depleted in life or where you feel deprived in life. And you need to do an assessment of where you're not getting your needs met. It may mean um, for probably, I would say 95% of the people I talk to, they've got at least 30 to 40% too much on their plates and their plates need to be emptied first before they start adding anything. So it might mean having to say no to things that you don't really want to say no to, but you have no choice for a while. Uh, it might mean befriending your sensitive side instead of, you know, there's a chapter in the book called um, You're So Sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it was I titled it that because that's what my dad used to say to me growing up all the time. You're so sensitive, which was mm-hmm. my Achilles heel. It was the thing I was embarrassed by and ashamed of and tried to disown and um, didn't want to be, didn't want anybody seeing that. And, you know, lo and behold, I would find out many years later, it was the gift to, it was the key to why I was so successful in life because I was sensitive and I could sense things and I could, you know, have empathy for people. And what I thought was my greatest curse turned out to be my greatest blessing. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So sometimes it means that, or it means, you know, developing the kind of healthy routines that keep us sane and present for life. Like the routine of a routine of a self-care routine of sleep Mm -hmm. or of, of balanced work or of caring for self versus caring for others. So there's a lot of different, I mean, one of the great things about the book is you can basically look at the look at the table of contents and decide where are you in the most pain? That's the Absolutely. chapter you should start with. And I'm curious, is this movement toward extreme self-care, is this a movement toward our authentic selves? Anytime you take extremely good care of yourself, anytime you challenge the norms that you're raised with that tell you be a nice girl, keep your mouth mm. shut, don't, you know, don't be a dragon lady, don't be, you know... Don't be, don't be disruptive. Don't be a nag, whatever. Anytime you challenge those voices, you're absolutely moving to a more authentic version of yourself, right? Because most of us spend 
a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to manage the perception of others, right? Mm. We're raised to do that. I mean, there's nothing bad about people. We are raised from a very young age to manipulate our environment so that people will like us, so that they'll meet our needs, so that they won't get angry at us. And in a lot of ways, adulthood is unlearning all of those behaviors that prevent us from being who we really are. And so ultimately, yeah, you know, practicing extreme self-care is about discovering who you are, what matters to you, what you don't want in your life, what you do want in your life, who you want to hang out with, who you don't want to hang out with, what brings you joy, what makes you feel alive. I mean, all of those things are related to being more authentic in life. And what is the price we pay if we hear the alarm bells going off and we're feeling resentful and we're giving to everybody else and we may even hear ourselves complaining about our lives? Mm-hmm. What is the price we pay if we don't make that shift? Well, in some ways, it depends on your age. Like if I look back in my own life, in my late 30s to early 40s, the price I paid was a declining health. I was running on adrenaline and I was exhausted a lot of the times, essentially running on fumes, although I didn't know it. And I would, my body would begin to let me know once as I get closer to my mid forties and it couldn't keep up with me anymore. So sometimes it's health related. Sometimes it's the breakdown of relationships um, or the escalating drama in one's life, right? Things just get more and more out of control Um, sometimes you'll experience multiple massive changes at once that you didn't ask for, like the loss of a job or, you know, health issues or the loss of a home. I mean, for, for at this time we're talking, you know, we're in the middle of sort of the back state backs, the back end, I hope of a pandemic. And a lot of people, you know, had massive changes thrust upon them at once. And so it can be, you know, you can suddenly deal with depression and anxiety and I think as we get older, um, a nagging sense that you're not living the life that you really want to live, growing resentment, especially for women, this sort of slow burning resentment that just escalates over time. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get into your late 50s and your early 60s and beyond, you start really, you know, building an intimate relationship with regret. Mm-hmm. And you see, my goodness, you know. I haven't done X, Y, and Z, and I don't have a lot of time left. And if I don't do it now, when am I going to? That's sometimes what brings people to the practice of extreme self-care is just they've reached the end of their rope and they realize I might die before I actually get to live my own life. Mm -hmm. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Right. And you say extreme self-care forces us to make choices and decisions that honor and reflect the true nature of the soul. And how do those choices honor the true nature of the soul? Well, when I think about, you know, I think of us this way. I think at our essence, we are all souls, right? We're here mm-hmm. on this planet. We are a kind of higher being, a great being. And um, But when we're born, we slowly begin to build a personality around that soul. Mm. Uh, or we begin, I, I almost think of it in terms of we begin to b- build our personality in front of the soul so that the you know, our life is more reflective of our personality or what the ego is crafting. And the ego isn't a bad thing. It's it's the construct. It's the personality that allows us to function in the world. But the problem is we begin to f- believe that we're our egos or our personality. We forget that we're actually much higher than that and much more evolved than that. And from a soul perspective, when we can connect with our wise self or our higher self or this 
greater part of us, we recognize things like we're all connected. My actions matter. They influence not only my life, but the life of my family and my community and the state that I live in and the country that I live in and the world that I live in. Like we begin to have a deep sense of empathy and compassion for um, for people. We stop picking sides. We're not as black and white. We actually, you know, want to be a positive force for change in the world. That's what the soul, the recognition of that higher part of us brings to the table. And most of us spend our lives worshiping the personality and trying our best to serve the personality. And um, that ultimately winds us up where we are in the world today, which Mm -hmm. is with a lot of greed, a lack of empathy. We have a crisis of empathy, I would say, right now in the world and in a whole bunch of unconscious people who haven't done any work running the show. And if we don't do our individual work and we don't make extreme self-care a priority, we run the risk of essentially, you know, annihilating ourselves. I mean, that's the bigger truth. Right. So true. And I hear that when you you use extreme self-care, you practice that, you're really coming in alignment with your soul. You're backing away from that personality. And and that's how you're serving your soul. I guess seeing the bigger picture, connecting to why you should be taking care of yourself. Well, yes, you're aligning yourself with who you really are, which Mm -hmm. is a very high, evolved, loving, compassionate, empathetic being. We are all that behind the personality. Mm -hmm. And... um, and so in some ways, the practice of extreme self-care is the slow and deliberate um, dismantling of the personality that prevents us from expressing that our higher nature. Mm, I love that. You already referred to some of the practices that you talk about in the book, but I thought I'd just touch on a few of them in a little bit more detail. And you already brought up, you know, chapter eight, which is about being, you know, you're so sensitive mm-hmm. and that you've already, you know, learned to protect and cultivate that. And I think a lot of people, you know, you know, will, if someone calls them a sensitive person, we tend to think of sensitive as a bad thing. Right. And, you know, if someone recognizes they're a sensitive person, they probably know that by now, if they're listening to this, you know, and I like how you say what's being a sensitive person is and sensitivity Mm -hmm. is about being open and receptive to life. It is about being in the present moment right here, right now with your soul's antenna fully engaged so that you can tune into the magic and beauty life has to offer. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to say that because I felt like when I was reading that part of the book, I, I, I occurred to me, I'm like, Oh my gosh, sensitivity is intuition. Would, yes. would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, that's, well, it's what allows us to be connected to our intuition. So first of all, I would say that the chapter, You're So Sensitive, and the chapter, Let Me Disappoint You, are the two most popular chapters in the book. No surprise mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Right. The Let Me Disappoint You chapter basically is saying that if you want to live a soul-directed life based on who you are at your essence and what it is you really want, then you must get comfortable with disappointing people, pissing them off and hurting their feelings, because that's what's going to happen. And so I'm not surprised that that's a popular chapter, because it essentially gives the reader permission to start doing that in as graceful a way as possible. Mm. And then the you're so sensitive chapter, I think the reason that is so popular is because at some level, we all know that not only are we sensitive people, but that it really is the key to being more tuned into life, being more tuned into ourselves, being more tuned into our intuition, which is our higher wisdom, being more tuned into ourselves as higher 
deeper, greater beings. And, you know, if you've ever had the experience of a, an unexpected surprise, loving encounter with a stranger, let's say, or, or with an old friend you haven't seen in a while, or, you know, some kind of an exchange where love was viscerally present, you know how good it feels to be connected on that kind of deeper, greater level. And mm-hmm. so um, you need to be, you need to learn to protect your sensitivity and to cultivate your sensitivity in order to be able to connect on that level. You know, you need, you need to be present. It's one of the things, it's why in some ways I feel like, and I forget, somebody said this, I don't know if it was Ram Dass who said this or somebody I was listening to, you know, one of the things, one of the areas that I'm, that I really appreciate and respect and love talking about is death and dying. When people are faced with their own death, their own mortality, or the mortality of loved ones around them, people start to get pretty authentic really quickly. I mean, sometimes our most regressed behaviors come out and people act like idiots because they're scared. They're just children in adult bodies. But when we are truly when we're scared, when, we're, when we've been hurt, when we're confronting the fear of losing something that's deeply important to us, we become really vulnerable. And that vulnerability makes us more authentic. And when people are more authentic in that way, you're more attractive. People just want to be around people who are honest and not playing games and respectful of that sort of deeper sensitivity. And so... Uh, in that regard, that chapter is really about teaching people how to systematically cultivate the ability to allow your sensitivity to be present because this wise part of you is able to protect you from the harshness of the world, the harshness of our environment, the harshness of people, unconscious people who care more about serving their personality than connecting to you in an authentic way. And if people have seen their sensitivity as not a good thing, as a weakness, how do they begin to shift away from that and embrace it and begin to cultivate it? Sometimes by just first hearing this conversation, right? Hearing that, I mean, when when my, um, so the first time I was introduced to that, my coach at the time, I had delivered my very first workshop on coaching. There were like I think 75 people in the room. I was all excited. I was really nervous. Coaching was a brand new profession. And I decided that I wanted to teach a workshop on coaching. And there were 75 people in the room and it was an all day workshop. And at the end of the workshop, I handed out evaluations and I got the evaluations back and 99% of them were really positive. And one person said, you know, it was a horrible experience that I didn't know what I was doing. And you know, it was a joke and she wasted her money. And I, that's, of course, that's the only thing I focused on was that I forgot all the other, you know, 74 positive or 99 positive evaluations. And I just focused on the one negative one. And for a week, I stewed on that. It's like, I probably memorized it verbatim. I could have, you know, delivered it back to you. And when I had a coaching call, I explained to Thomas about what happened. And I talked about that, um, that negative review and that negative, you know, evaluation. And I said to him, you know, in the course of that conversation, when I started to cry, I said to him, you know, I hate that I'm so sensitive. I hate that this bothers me so much. And um, I just, you know, I just wish I could get rid of my sensitivity. I can't stand it. 
and there was silence. And he waited like he often used silence as an important coaching tool. <laughs> there was silence for a good minute. And then he said to me, you know, Cheryl, that's funny because the way I see it, your sensitivity is your greatest gift. It's what makes you a great coach. Mm-hmm. And he didn't say anything. And then I really started to cry. And I thought, my God, what if my sense, what if he's right? Like it felt revelatory to me. Like what if he is, what if he's right? And, and he said to me, you know, if I were you, I'd be more focused on protecting that gift than criticizing it. And that's when we began that work to really consciously and methodically protect my sensitivity so that I could, you know, be be even better at the work that I did. And honestly, I've had a pretty successful career. And I would bank a lot of that on the fact that that I'd go right back to that conversation where that, um, you know, that piece of wisdom that allowed me to embrace my sensitivity was the very thing that would fuel a career far beyond what I ever could have imagined. Mm, how amazing. Yeah. I think if someone's listening to this, it's your superpower versus, versus yeah. anything else that it's not the, the weak thing that I, I think people that's, it's a great reframe. And I love that. That's a great way of saying it too. I like mm. that. That's a really, you know, it's smart to think of it that way for sure. Mm. The other thing that really resonated with me in the book too is a, what you describe as a soul loving space because I think it's so important right now in the in, during COVID and the pandemic. You know, I'm at home all the time with you know work from home, podcast from home. I have two mm. children on at home and online university, mm. and um, and you said in all your years of coaching, I've seen few ways to practice extreme self care that have had a more dramatic or immediate effect on the quality of life than this one idea. And you said it's more about clear, it's, it's not just about clearing the clutter or getting organized. So what is it about creating a soul loving space? Well, um, if we look at a more sort of broader conversation around that, what I find is that um, most of us are focused on where we want to go, right? We're focused on um, the goal that we want to achieve, the dream we want to achieve, the, um, you know, what we want to get in life. And just based on my coaching experience over the years, when we focus on eliminating the things from our lives that no longer work for us, when we begin to make space on a consistent basis, um, what ends up happening is a life far beyond what we could have imagined begins to move towards us. So sometimes that means decluttering a physical environment, right? Making your home a more comforting, nurturing place, a place that can really host you in a significant way, you know, in a, in a life affirming Mm self-care kind of way. Sometimes it means doing the same thing with your work environment, but it can also mean looking at your relationships and asking yourself, you know, which relationships really feed me and fuel me and feel mutually supportive and loving, um, which relationships really make me feel good about myself versus question myself or feel criticized all the time. Um, and sometimes the environment is our financial house, a lot of people need to get their financial house in order, and they've, um, you know, recognized that in a very painful way during the pandemic, for example, because, you know, so many Americans, I'll, you know, I'll speak for my country, so many Americans um, weren't prepared. For, I mean, I'm, I don't think anybody was prepared for the kind of devastating loss we experienced, but for a lot of us, it was a wake-up call. It was a really important self-care wake-up call that we needed to get our financial house in order. So Mm. the bigger conversation is about 
looking at, you know, people always say to me, where do I start to practice good self-care? And I say, start with um, subtraction rather than addition. Look at where in your life you need to begin removing things so that you can create more space. And if you create more space, you can just, you can rest more. You can be more present to yourself. You can get more connected to yourself in a way that helps you to truly be clear about what matters most to you as a soul right now, not to the personality, but to the essence of you so that the choices you make really honor the higher parts of you. Mm, That's so good. Yeah. I love that. Looking at it from different houses, your financial house, not just your Mm -hmm. physical space as well, Mm -hmm. which is um, yeah. Cause I'm thinking, how have you seen this transform people's lives? I guess, you know, it's kind of, I think Gretchen Rubin has a book called outer order, inner calm. And it's kind (laughs) of like, you know, you clean up what's outside of you. It frees up that space inside of you. It's true. I mean, it's true. I remember one time I was working with a lawyer who had hired me because he was trying to build his practice. He had been in business for, I think, five years or so. And he noticed that business had been slowing down. And this was back when I was actually meeting with clients and, you know, years ago when I was still coaching. And um, I remember going to his office and his office looked like a bomb went off in it. There were file (laughs) folders everywhere, crap all over his desk. I mean, it was a mess. And I remembered he answered his phone. He picked up his phone and he went, oh, God. And I said, what? And he said, voicemails. You know, I've got 12 voicemails. You know, it's ridiculous. I don't know why people keep calling me. And I looked, I sat down, I looked at him and I said, okay, I want you to just stop for a moment and look around this room. And then I want you to think about your voicemails. And I want you to ask yourself, how excited are you to welcome new business into your life? You know, when he started laughing, I said, you can't even handle what's already here. And so rather than come up with a new marketing strategy or a new logo or branding strategy, let's start by making space, like physically, literally making space. Let's get get this office cleaned up. Let's get all the loose ends that you need to handle for clients done. Let's not take on any new business until you create the space to be able to be present so that you're excited when the phone rings and somebody wants to talk to you or you're anxious to bring somebody into your office because you're proud of it and it looks so great and it's spacious and clean and it sends a message that you're ready and available and organized. And, you know, he agreed. And for the next three months, that's what the focus was on. He got, he bought new filing cabinets. He got everything, his desk cleared off. The goal was to work with a completely clear desk, except for what he was working on. And sure enough, clients just started to come in to the door and they weren't just any clients. They were actually ideal clients, high paying clients who took the work seriously and showed up and got him what he needed on time because he was taking himself more seriously. So that's just, it's kind of symbolic for our lives that if you're thinking, oh, if I just had a better job, then I'd feel better. Well, maybe no, maybe you need to declutter your home or maybe you need to start living well within your means or pay off debt or Um, get a second job so that you can pay off, you know, what are the basics that need to get handled first so that you're not trying to add things to your life as a band-aid, but instead you're adding the right things to your life at the right time. Mm, It's so true. I love that. And I know our time is almost up Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I, you know, one of the things you talk about is finding your passion. I hear a lot of people talking about, I want to find my passion. But what you're really talking about is you clear up all that stuff that's bugging you that you uh-huh. may not even be realize that you're bugging you. You actually have time to devote to 
what you might actually love. And um... well, a lot of people who say I'm anxious to find my passion are really saying I'm hungry for my life. Mm. And they think it's about passion, but it's really about a more authentic life. So, so good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why practicing the art of extreme self-care, that's why I see this book as the foundation course. It's like, don't go for your PhD yet. Let's get your bachelor's in good self-care because when you do, the things that you're passionate about and excited about will find you. You won't even have to work hard to, to locate them yourself. Oh, wow. That's so great. I love that. And I'm curious, how has your own extreme self-care shifted over the years? And I know you kind of reference, you know, it depends on what age you're at. Yeah. But how does that, how, what is your relationship with extreme self-care now? Well, even before the pandemic, I mean, I had started traveling a lot less. I really reached the point where I thought, you know, I've worked for a long time and I've traveled a lot and I've, and I love teaching and I love going to other countries, but I just decided it was time to travel more for pleasure doesn't mean that, you know, if I'm traveling to England, I'll often let somebody there know and do a workshop or a speech while I'm there. But it's because I, it's fun, not because it's, you know, something that I committed to a year prior. I definitely like to live more spontaneously now. I don't like a lot of appointments in, in my calendar. I happen to be somebody who likes to really honor how I feel on a given day, on a given morning and sort of operate from there. Um, I am, I pay even more attention to my financial health so that I have the freedom to do what I want to do. So I stay on top of that. And um, I work on projects that I real, I feel really excited about, sort of soulful about versus <clears throat> ideas that I think would be a good idea that's next for my career. I'm, you know, I think less strategically in that way and more soulfully. Mm, I love that. When do you still get derailed? Um, I think the, the 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 true answer to that question is when I catch myself impulsively saying yes to something and then regretting it afterwards because suddenly I have a busy week. Mm. And I don't, you know, the older I get, the more I really can't tolerate being too busy. I just can't, mm. I just have no interest in that anymore. So Sometimes I catch myself, I have to really remember, I always say, put it, you know, put space between a request of your time and energy mm. and your response. And that's the one thing I always have to remind myself of. And if and I forget, my husband reminds me. <laughs> I love that. Well, we have jammed, uh, you know, jammed in a lot of ideas in a small <laughs> amount of time. So I love the fact that you have uh, given me a little space in your schedule. Mm -hmm. um, I just have a last uh, few quick rapid fire questions for you. Sure. Uh, what have you learned about the power of being you? Um, it's a really worthwhile endeavor. Mm -hmm. What has become abundantly clear to you? Uh, we are going to die. Mm. And what does the world need most? Um, more empathetic, loving, and awake people who are connected to their souls, mm. connected to themselves as souls. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing your insight and hopefully maybe helping in someone's awakening today when they listen to this. So I, I greatly appreciate your time, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. It's so wonderful to talk with you. And thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. That was such a great conversation. 
If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.